The, the way you just react is the same way every public investor reacts. Why should I go back to energy? We actually hear Kramer say it all the time on CNBC. Why are we even talking about oil? Why are we talking Oil's about it? Oil's dead. Yeah. And, it, and it's because of getting burned so many times. And I think the reason you got burned, I always remember when, let's just call them smaller busts when they occurred, they were V-shaped recoveries, yep. which is kind of the worst thing for for a cyclical business, right? right? It, you need, honestly, bigger busts and bigger booms because they last longer. Yeah, And that's, in a way, that's kind of, be- in some ways, it's better for an investor, right? Because it's longer one direction. And so I think what you're, what you're truly having in the space now is a true downturn. And when you hear operators finally come out and like really changing the way they're thinking, like, hey, we're only gonna drill out of 70% of our cash flow and we're gonna return cash to shareholders. Like, that has not been said in a long time. And so I think the mineral world will do the same. And I think all of those things will justify higher, not crazy high oil prices, but more sustainable prices that create healthy margins for investment of capital, right? For sure. It's just gonna work, work its way out. And so that return will go to where it's justified for investors' needs. And when that point happens, I think it'll be a healthy balance and it'll be a longer run for investors to come in the space. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have two of my best friends in the entire world, Trent and Tyler Leon on with me today, the founders of Tilden Capital. I've been asking them for a while to do this one with me and they agreed to do it. And we spend this episode really talking about the oil and gas business, but more specifically the mineral business. Tyler and Trent have been one of the most prolific buyers of minerals in the Permian Basin over the last five years and have really done some incredible things. So today we talk about how that industry works, why the Permian Basin is the most prolific basin in the country, how they value minerals, their partnership with private equity and how that's helped their business, and the early days of the shale revolution and how that really got them going. So thank you again for continuing to join me, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My brothers, Trent and Tyler, welcome to the show. Can you guys just start off by telling me your story growing up and what brought you to today? Yeah, I'll do it. This is Trent. Todd and I grew up in Dallas. We were golfers our whole life for the most part. Pretty much after age 12, we went down to IMG Academies and we were there for, Tyler was there for four years. I was there for six. Her sister was there for six. And we were just devoted to the game of golf. We all got full rides, played Division One golf. Tyler and I ended up at Oklahoma State, our sister at Georgia. We had pretty good college careers there and then gave it a world to try to make some money at the game. Uh, Tyler did a lot better at me than that. I did not. I was not very successful <laughs> as a professional golfer. But uh, we each did that for, say, three years. And then we started kind of entering into the business world. And uh, I moved down to South Texas. Eagle Fur was blown up. I just built an RV park immediately to try to just start doing something. No real barrier in entry into that business. And we yeah. had some land. And Tyler was selling frack jobs up in Oklahoma. I forgot about that. Yeah, I played golf till I guess 2011. Finally realized I need to do something else. 
And I happened to meet a guy up in Stillwater, Oklahoma, who owned a frat company, really smart guy, kind of bootstrapped it in the eighties and had made a lot of money and started a new, a new frat company. And anyways, he asked me to do sales. I knew nothing about it. And he's like, no, you'll be fine. You can figure it out. And I just like, I figured it out in the eighties. And so he just got me going out to locations and kind of teach me from the ground up as well. And it was, it was a great experience. I did that for about a year, year and a half and learned a lot of the ins and outs of the business, the lingo, and then also saw a business that I quite honestly thought was, was too hard for me to continue to go in. <laughs> the Willfield service business is, is really tough and takes a lot of people and just a lot of things got to go right. And so at that junction, I had, the Eagleford had happened. We were fortunate enough to have a ranch with some minerals in South Texas and I'd always been interested in the mineral aspect and had bought a few ourselves and kind of saw valuations from all different people buying. And so we started doing that some more. And then we actually started operating some wells with a guy who really mentored us on the EMP side out of Beeville, Texas, a guy named John Beasley, who is another guy who just kind of taught himself and figured it out. And he taught us a bunch. And so we, we went and tried that as well, had a little success in that, and then stumped our toes a few times and a little more success and said, man, this is pretty tough. Then we also tried the service business a little bit with disposals. We tried to solve our disposals. We had done well as partners in that in Eagleford, tried to do it ourselves. Once again, another tough business and um, really oil crashed about the time we were getting ramped up. And so that was a great learning lesson for us on, um, you know, commodity swings. Yeah. You know, one of the things I saw, though, was, hey, mineral prices kind of hang around even during good times and bad times, a little bit more, not as erratic, right, the market. And so uh, I looked at Trent and I said, you know, I think it's our time to go buy minerals. Yeah. I think we should really put the foot down. It's been good to us. We've seen it's been good to others. If you can buy right, it's just seemed a lot like real estate, which our dad was in commercial real estate and taught us a lot about that. And so and so that's what we did. We just kind of embarked on that. And started buying minerals and what uh, year was that i guess it was like 14. yeah 2015 yeah. spring spring of 14 we kind of started so y'all had the family ranch down in tilden down in the eagleford growing up was oil and gas always a thing or was there like a time that you're like what's this eagleford thing and there's a it's called the awp field it's a pretty small window uh almost wells they're like nine thousand feet deep just above the eagleford and so we were fortunate to have portion of that field go through our ranch. But for the most part, you know, your people are drilling Wilcox wells, which hit every now and then, uh, some Carrizo wells here and there. So it's around, but you know, you'd go down there, even when Thomas was probably blowing up, you'd still only see like 10 cars a day past the, yeah. the house where, you know, the Eagleford blew up. I mean, there's thousands of cars or, you know, it's crazy. So it was never like, I mean, the shale boom has been a true revolution, right? Yeah. And so it's changed that part of the world forever even though it's not as busy now. Do you remember like a time, was there like a moment that like maybe somebody in the family called and they're like, somebody just called our ranch and want to lease the whole thing. And there's this thing called the Eagleford and like y'all's antenna went up. The, a lot of them were leasing in the Edwards, which is below the Eagleford. Okay. That's kind of what, uh, pet, who was it? San Isidro? San Isidro was leasing in the Edwards. They were just targeting a deep gas play at the time. And, uh, about that time, a geologist had kind of got with Petrohawk and put a bunch of acreage together. San Isidro got wind about it because they were targeting the Eagleford. So then they started leasing. So the, the interesting thing, uh, the moment, a couple of moments I realized is like uh, a guy, a fellow rancher called my uncle who 
had been the patriarch of the family and dealt with all the oil and gas stuff for a long time and said, you know, I got an offer for 250 bucks an acre. And he's like, you think I should take it? My uncle's like, you know, I don't, I'm probably not, I'd probably ride it out a little bit more. But at the time when he said that, he goes, that was the high, that's like the highest offer we've ever been offered in the history of owning these properties. Yeah. Because vertical production, you just didn't offer. And that was just to lease the minerals. That's just to lease it, right? I'm paid 250 and a quarter royalty. And so that's how it, it kind of started. And then I just remember fast forward, things kind of got ramped up from there. More yeah. and more interest came in. And it's like, oh, we got an offer for a thousand. We got an offer. Oh, that's really good. And we'll take that on a little portion. And then it's like, oh, that guy just offered 1800. And, and then it just kept going up. And it, yeah. it, it was just a... It was earlier on in shale and no one really knows the EURs and all that kind of thing. And prices just kept going up. It was pretty amazing. And that was purely because of horizontal drilling and fracking. That's right. Very early on. And that was what year was that all happening? 2009. They took some leases in 08, probably the $250 leases. And by the time you got to 2010, you know, you're talking three, 4,000, 5,000 an acre leases. But a lot of people got saved by favors nation clause, which we had in ours. So if you lease someone for 200, but someone in arm's length or whatever leased at 2,000, they got to pay you the 2,000. Oh, really? Even if it's a different company? Wow. Okay. All right. So 2014 comes, you get into minerals, kind of fell in line with buying real estate and some you'd stubbed your toe in other areas of the business. Did y'all start in the Permian or we'll, we'll get into what y'all more do today. Um, no, we started, uh, we started in the Eagleford. And we had bought a few deals in Oklahoma and Pennsylvania, kind of pre-14. But we started in the Eagle for with the intentions of, with the price crash to try to buy there. Yeah. And we gave it a good effort. We bought a couple it, good it, deals. We bought a couple deals, but it, but it was tough. You know, I mean, just there wasn't a lot of sellers. The prices people wanted were still really high because that's what they were offered pre-crash. And so we didn't have a ton of success. And so then we we said, well, you know, these are some pretty good wells out in the Permian. Had heard a few comps and some deals out there and said, you know, I think it make Trent, this is, just makes a ton of sense. We need to go out here and buy. Sure enough, that's that's what we did. And we just kind of put it in motion and we started buying out there. Well, and y'all were one of the, not the first, but y'all were the first at kind of in a bigger way to start going into the Delaware. Like I remember when y'all were out there and everybody was kind of like, why are the Leons focused in the Delaware when everybody else was, what, what like triggered y'all to be there which ultimately ended up being an incredible decision. But why were y'all early? We were fortunate to see the Eagleford. Yeah. And it was in our backyard. And we saw, you know, saw the prices people had offered for our minerals. And that's eight wells a section. We Explain saw, what that means. The, in the Eagleford shell, the spacing. So if you had a section of land. Um, which is 640 uh, acres. 640 mile acres. Mile. It's a mile wide, mile long. At the time, the most wells they could drill within the within the Eagleford Shale in a section was eight wells okay. per section. And so you knew that, right? So you had eight wells a section and say someone's willing to pay you X, right? Yep. So we were looking in the Permian and the Delaware to us seemed to have the most resource okay. in our mind. And when I say resource, most wells per section that could have been drilled and most hydrocarbons in the ground. Right. Because of the stacked intervals. And said, well, heck, there's 20 wells you can drill there, 30 yeah. or 14, right? And... That's trading for Y, which was actually below the price of the Eagleford Shale. Yep. And so that's what really cued us in on it was, well, that's a discount yep. that we should go take. And tackle. the wells were twice as big. And I mean, granted, you're two years ahead, so technology got better. Yeah. But we saw what people were offering us on 
you know, 300,000 barrel oil EURs. So ultimate recovery out of that well be 300,000 barrels yep. times eight, right? That's yep. what you can pay in a section to max it out. And so when we looked out in the Delaware, like these wells are bigger, there's more wells. We've really been focused in the Northern Delaware since day one. Yes, we've bought in the Southern Delaware when we saw price arbitrage or a good deal, but we have always wanted to be in Southern New Mexico and loving in Northern Reeves. And that's just, there's a little more resource there, which people, it everybody knows that now, but in 2015, Tyler and I were paying more than the private equity groups, but it was still, I mean, relative to evaluations even today after multiple price crashes, still well below, I mean, is the prices were it made it sense to you why, and why like were y'all but why were y'all like why was nobody else seeing this there's so much money and talent in the industry private equity is the biggest competitor out there which that's what we're in now they need a lot of sight they need a lot of well results there was not enough wells at that time were 14 million they cost 14 million to drill a well yeah we saw in the eagleford when they first started there 15 million wells within a year they're 12 and two years they're down to nine right so Tyler, like, they're going to figure this out. There'll be more infrastructure. These things will get cheaper. The wells will get cheaper. And so we just really believed in that because the well results were so big, we knew that everything would come along with it. Yep. And so, you know, in NCAP, they couldn't go out there and say they're going to drill 16 wells in the section because they, they hadn't done it yet in a section. Yeah. And so that that's still a problem today with private equity. But at the same time, look, they're risking institutional money. For sure. They don't need to take a gamble like that. Tyler and I didn't have a pref on our do- dollars at the time, so we could wait. Yep. Um, so the Midland Basin had more activity. So a lot of them were focused over there because like, look, these guys can drill 24 wells in a section. They're doing it everywhere. Yep. So that's where they wanted to focus. We went out there and private equity was followed probably a year or two later. So taking one step back and we kind of just glossed over it, but you know, you don't have to get into your secret sauce of exactly how y'all do it, but how do you evaluate what a mineral is worth? Well, there's a lot of factors. I mean, you got to, it's, You've got to see what resource the operator's going to drill. There's a timing aspect. When's he going to drill? Because that's the conversion to cash, which is ultimately your yield on your dollars. And then you got to risk that, right? Yeah. So how much value is in the ground? How quick do we think it takes to come out? That's that's the two main factors, right? Yep. And then obviously what's commodity prices? What's your, what do you think strip's going to be pricing? And so you just throw those three in there and and that's really where everyone has a different opinion yeah and that's why there's different prices being offered to different people yeah and um you know that, that that's how you find an answer for a price and how do y'all find out how something if something's going to be drilled or when it's going to be drilled is that using technology is that talking to operators looking for permits all the above yeah I mean, we're we're in the basin every day so like look eog has been focused in a certain area for for three years right so yeah. When you see permits in that area with the EOG, you're like, all right, they're going to like that. Pioneers have been blowing up similar areas for the last five years. So you feel more comfortable around those spots. Yeah. Because it's an educated guess of, because none of us know when you're going to get hit. And even if you have some information, things change so quick. Yeah. And it doesn't help. And so, you know, you're just looking for the best rock with the best operators and you try to buy in that area and you try to stay comfortable. Yeah. And when it gets uncomfortable, you just have to decide, okay. Do I want, do I want to make this bet or do I not? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, that that's what it is. And it's a finance guy's nightmare because you don't know when it's going to happen for sure. And so with working interest, yeah, you're having, which working interest is when you pay to help drill the well, maybe you're the operator, maybe you're not that at least it's like, okay, I know these wells are coming on in the next six months. These wells are going to cost 10 million a piece. That's 60 million. I got X amount of percent of it. Yeah. And these are the returns I should get. Those returns are probably lower, but it's all right. 
strips this. They have all these numbers they can plug in. Yeah. I'm going to make this. So they yeah, get yeah. comfortable with minerals. It is, I mean, we don't know when they're going to get hit. Yep. You have an idea. And in minerals, it doesn't matter if, let's just say it's the same rock, same lease. And hypothetically, if one group drilled the well for 10 million and the other group drilled the well for 15 million, same exact well, it doesn't matter to the mineral owner how much the well costs. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the greatest thing about minerals that I hope, you know, really gets communicated to to the audience today and to and and to everyone that's an investor in the markets. I mean, the great thing about minerals is you don't pay any cost. Yep. Right. So you own the asset. Once you buy it, you let's just say you agree to a twenty five percent royalty stream. That's off gross revenue for yep. the most part. And so, you know, you buy it one time and if they drill two wells, you get that royalty. If they drill a hundred wells in that section, you get the royalty. And so it's a really great way. I, I feel like it's the best way these days to play the energy space. And you were talking about intervals and for somebody listening that it's called benches, call whatever, is the reason why you can drill 24 wells in the Delaware versus eight in Eagleford, there's multiple benches. So if you're thinking underneath the earth, there's just lots of layers of oil, each of those being a bench. That's right. Just envision like a, you know, a cake with seven layers, yep. right? And so everywhere in the United States, the rock has seven, 20, 30 different layers of, of rock, right? A sandstone, a limestone, a shale yep. and, and different rocks, a dolomite, everything. And so not always are they all productive, but, you know, for example, in the Eagleford, one of those slices was, yeah. and in the Permian, the, that's, what's so wonderful about it out there is a lot of those slices are productive and still no one knows exactly what it is today, but there's, there's multiple formations that are being targeted every day. And that's that's another great reason with buying minerals is you have that optionality for so far down the future. Yeah, it's called oil and gas. Do you all go for stuff that is producing more oil, more gas? Do you care? Yeah, we do. You know, in the Delaware, you get a lot of non-associated gas. The prices in the Delaware are minuscule for what you get for your gas compared to what we get for the Eagleford yeah. to get it out of there. Yeah. And uh, there's some choke points and they just kind of bend you over really and you almost give it away for free. Yeah. Um, but that gas helps a lot of that oil come out at a cheaper cost, right? Yeah. More pressure. So we have a lot of gas exposure in the Eagle Third through our legacy asset. And we have some stuff in the Marcellus, but we are, you know, in private equity, which is what we've been doing the last few years, they want oil, oily assets. Yeah. And there's why there's just there's nat gas everywhere. And well, we do as well. We do. Yeah. I mean 100%. we percent. We think we just think that's a, a better buy and that's a that's a personal opinion, right? Yeah. There's a lot of people think, man, I think I should be buying gas. I think that's the- Because of the commodity price? Well, yeah, they just think, look, let's say gas trading for two bucks, yeah. you know, right? And it, at one time it was $10, $11, $13, then $4, $6. So they just feel like, look, I'm towards the bottom. I think it can go up. You know, for us, we believe more in the oil story, even with all the environmental headwinds, we still think, it's, uh, I guess, scarcer, you know, it's probably the main reason it's scarcer than natural gas. And I think there's still more upside in oil than, than that gas. But once again, that's our personal opinion. Yeah. The gas wells in the Marcellus and the Haynesville are massive. There's a ton of dry gas in the Eagleford. You can go drill if prices go up. And so, like, you're seeing a rush to gas right now just because you can lock in, like, 330 pricing, $3.30 in MCF next year. Yeah, and through so hedging. Those, yeah, and those guys can lock that in. And, well, that's, I mean, gas was trading a buck fifty a year ago. So that is a huge uptick. So everybody's, you're kind of seeing the Haynesville and East Texas kind of pick up. There's a lot of gas. But, and I could be totally wrong, but 
they can go, they're going to saturate that market pretty quick. And there's sure. guys drilling at the mouth in South Texas that have a ton of dry gas. Now they can't drill them. The returns aren't as better, but there's just gas everywhere. Yep. So it's called the Permian Basin, but there's the Delaware and the Midland Basin. What are the differences between the two basins and why do some favor one over the other? You know, there are two sub-basins of the Permian Basin. Right. Right. And it's just as much location. And then there was a the Central Basin uplift right there. So they just called them different names for the basins. Right. The Midland Basin. I guess first, let me say both basins are incredible and are pretty much the best basins in the United States. Yeah. The Midland Basin is a little shallower. So cost to drill and complete is cheaper, which is really advantageous in this tough market. It's oilier. There's less gas. Less fracturing. It's easier yeah. to drill. It's more It's more clean top to bottom. You're not going to run into faulting. And so faulting is like an uplift and it just causes problems for drilling and it can trap oil on one side or the other. So if you're on the wrong side of that fault, you might have a, you're not going to hit the returns you want. Where in Midland, it's pretty clean. Yep. It's easier to plug in your returns before you drill a well. Got it. All right. So we're in the Delaware where you have cash to start deploying one of the things and we can get into the differences between buying and selling real estate and buying and selling minerals. Maybe my first question, what are the main reasons why people end up selling their minerals? I'll go. I mean, cancer is a big one. People die and they got to do estate planning. People get older and they're like, you know, can my kids, you know, it's, it's to own minerals. It's not like just owning an empty lot. There's right. a lot that goes into it and you kind of got to watch the operator. And especially if you're a big mineral owner, I mean, it's hard to keep up with. Yeah. Those operators, you know, they might not want to be doing it, but a lot of times you are kind of getting screwed on your royalty checks. Yeah. So these big patriarchs have been doing it for 40 years or they're savvier probably than their kids who are maybe now they're in Austin doing a tech deal or something. They're not in the business and they don't want to leave them with that. It, and it can be a burden. Yeah. Um, and so that's how you, some of the bigger guys, but estate planning is a big one. We've bought a lot of houses in Colorado the last couple of years for some people. Yeah. <laughs> it's another one. Uh, what else, Tyler? I mean, I think another, uh, the big one that's a lot different, you know, back in the day, everyone said, don't sell your minerals. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think we've all probably heard that story. But that's when someone offered $100 an acre. Right. Or they're like, I'll offer you 30 months cash flow. Well, I, I think a lot of people have sold for a lot different reasons these days. And and a lot of it's got to do with price. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're able to pay a lot more. And with that is more limited upside for us buyers, but still there. But it's a fair price for what's being offered. So I think some people are like, wow, 10000 an acre? Like, this is in the desert and it's made me $0 for the last 30 years? okay, I think I should take some off the table. Yep. So I think there's just a lot of that. I mean, quite honestly, I think a fair price is being offered most of the time. And to put in perspective, like $100 to like where at the peak Delaware did prices get to per, is it royalty acre, net mineral acre? There's a couple tr like crazy transactions, but uh, you can't really use those as like data points. But I mean, I there are some really good stuff trading for 30000 an acre. And like 10 years before that, it was trading for... Oh, I mean, $50 an acre, $100 an acre. Yeah. So like with, with <laughs> vertical wells, right? Vertical wells, and you're going out there, you're taking a risk. I don't, you know, you know it's there, but with the vertical well, your, your returns are going to be X and you're going to dry hole X percent of them. Yeah. And so it was risky. And if you're, a lot of the old mineral buyers, they go out and they want to buy huge swaths of land at as cheap of an acreage cost they can get and hope in 20 years, they're going to, something's going to happen. Yeah. And now with, horizontal drilling and shale, 
it's a lot easier and it, it it's a you know where it's at and you can go make these bets and they're getting 50 to 70 percent of that oil year one yeah and that's the biggest difference the returns are fast forwarded you're not having to wait 10 years on that well yep and that's with hydraulic fracturing and so in vertical you're you might get a lot of cheap acreage you're going to drill 10 wells maybe three of them hits they're much cheaper to drill seven of them don't but the economics still makes sense horizontal you're paying a lot more up front a lot more to drill but you're basically hitting every single well that's right yeah more manufacturing do you okay maybe just a quick question Prices have gone up. The public markets have, in a lot of cases, a lot of producers, it's been proven that maybe they're not drilling profitable wells. Do you think vertical drilling is going to make a comeback? Has it ever not been there? Or like as, as we move forward, is it all about horizontal or is it, are we going to go back to vertical as I, well? I don't think you go back. I think vertical drilling has still been going on around the country. And I think, I think it, it always was, but I think that's why, quite honestly, oil prices got so high, right? Yeah. Pre, pre-shale, we were just running out of hydrocarbons needed to run the world. Yeah. And that's what vertical drilling was producing. Yeah. Now, they're still doing it. It's not as, there's not massive fields that are being found on, you know, the lower 48 anymore and stuff like that. Yes, they're having success in Alaska. They're having success offshore, stuff like that. But horizontal drilling will still be the mainstay of the lower 48s hydrocarbon growth and production going forward. So when you buy a mineral, you own it forever. But when you lease a mineral, you might oh, you might have the obligation for three or five years. Um, does it require you to keep drilling or how do you lose a lease? And like I'm assuming when y'all are evaluating, you see Pioneer has a lease of three years. They're going to have to drill something in three years or they lose the lease. Like what are what are the leases look like today? Do they require people to keep drilling or you can just drill one well and hold it forever? So the, the Permian, like especially the Midland side, you have a, you just inherit, we're inheriting when we go buy someone their lease, right? Yeah. And so that lease might've been made in 1960. Yeah. And it's been held by production. That one well's held it. They signed a, a bad lease, but mineral owners have gotten a lot smarter over 50 years and for instance, when you went down to the Eagleford and you go lease up a big ranch, I mean, there's legit continuous drilling clauses. They had to drill well every 90 days. If they didn't, they would lose that lease. Wow. That is pretty unheard of in the Permian Basin. Okay. But in the Eagleford, it was almost a standard. But that's, they were going to lease 5,000 acre, 20,000, 50,000 acre ranches, which that wasn't the case out in the, in the Permian. It was more, in the Midland Basin especially, more common in the Delaware side where you'd see bigger leases, guys with three-year lease, three plus two. And we did get to reap some benefits from what the stuff that we bought in 2015 and got to release it. It is right now, there's not a ton of, a lot of stuff's held by production. And a lot of these people signed leases where they drilled one well, it hold it as long as that well is producing and paying quantity. So there's maybe three ways to make money in minerals. There's the the royalty checks that you get. There is the lease bonuses that you can get if you have unleased acreage. And then there's the profits you can make from just selling your minerals, basically. That's right. Are you all buying non-producing minerals or are you buying royalties or both? Do you care? We'll, we'll buy both. It's just always a value situation. And can you give a little bit of what uh, you also buy overrides? Uh, right. What's an override? And, and then what's like an MPRI? Uh, an override is a royalty stream that's basically... A, a cost-free royalty stream that's carved off the working interest position. Got it. So it's tied to the lease. So it's a it's a great 
thing to do. Uh, the only risk compared to it to mineral interest is, hey, if that lease ever did stop producing, then you can possibly lose the override. Yeah. But with the way the leases are, most of the time, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And then uh, an NPRI is a non-participating royalty interest. Basically, for the most part, it, it, there's it can get a little bit more complex, but for the most part, they're going to just get a royalty stream. If they lease the minerals, they're not going to get a bonus for yep. leasing it. They're just going to come in once a well comes online and royalties being paid. And when you guys said that stuff becomes a burden, let's say there's a patriarch of a family that owns, I don't know, a hundred acres and they have, you know, 50 grandchildren and they die. If they have not made a plan for what to do with those minerals, like by legally, it just gets separated 50 ways or how does that work? Cause that's I know right. like that's the complication with minerals. It just keeps getting divided and divided and more complicated. That's right. If there's not a, you know, if there's not a will, uh, stating what's going to occur, then the laws of whatever state you're in come in place. And so in that case where you just said, you know, there could be 50 grandchildren, then it would probably go equally amongst them depending yeah. on the state laws. And so that's the thing. If you had a hundred acres and it goes to 50 or if you had 10 acres and it goes to 50, that's, yeah. that's not a lot. Right. And yeah. so some people say, Hey, I'd rather just sell and have cash and give them cash and they can do what they want. Yeah. You guys said, okay, Delaware, you're buying in Texas and New Mexico. Are there some like big things that come to mind of just the difference in buying in New Mexico versus Texas? Yeah. Interesting topic now with uh, our president-elect. Yep. Uh, so we've bought a lot of federal overrides. Okay. So these are federal leases, say Exxon took them or the Bass family took them in 1950. Yeah. They've held them for 70 years. Southern New Mexico has more oil in place than anywhere else in the United States today, right? Yeah. And what's interesting is the owners up there, a lot of them are in the business because they're overrides or they're carved off. Their dads were geologists or they were in oil and gas. And so Tyler and I spent a lot of time in Roswell meeting with some of these guys. And uh, it just the overrides have always been, the federal lands in New Mexico, they were priced at a, a deduct to Texas. So when we were going in there and buying in New Mexico a year or two ago, we were paying 50% what people were paying two miles south in Texas. Yeah. And so the arbitrage to us was incredible at the time. Yeah. That has tightened big time because now people have gone in there. Yeah. Um, the cost to, to they don't have uh, tax rolls. Yeah. So you can't go in there and say, all right, Chris Powers owns in this section because he's paying taxes in here, right? Right. Um, so you have to go in and spend a lot of money up front to get that title. And a lot of brokers or whoever else that we're competing against, they didn't want to do that. Or we did that and we did it with George Young Jr. at Pegasus. And we went and got a bunch of title and started going after these people. And, uh, and it was, we had a lot of success. Yep. And the, the uh, but the biggest landscape issue is it's a lot of state and federal owned lands versus yeah. private ownership. And so you're typically going to buy overrides in New Mexico and minerals in Texas in general. Well, we're going to get to this later, but since we're already here on this topic, let's just go forward with it. Looks like there's going to be a change in power at the White House. Uh, what does that mean to y'all from an oil and gas perspective? There's been a lot of hype about he's going to get rid of fracking or no drilling on federal lands. Like, what are y'all thinking? I think, you know, I think it's probably still too early to tell. You know, if the green new, if the green new deal had occurred or does occur, that would be extremely detrimental to oil and gas, right? What's the green new deal? That's a plan that's been touted by the Democrats that Biden's talked about. He would need, it sounds like, complete control of the Senate and House, and 
to to get something like that approved. So I don't know if that's going to occur now. Yeah, uh, but in trillions of dollars for EV and you know batteries and those buildings that they talked about and yeah, you know everything against you know coal and oil and gas and yeah. And so what he could do, you know, some of the issues. One of the issues he's he's touted, you know, the no fracking ban. I don't think that's realistic. Uh, I think that was more just rhetoric. Yeah. And then I think um, the other thing being, you know, slowing down or banning, fe- you know, permits on federal lands. And that's a big issue when you have a, an area like New Mexico that's a huge producer of oil and gas for the United States. Yeah. I mean, it's it like Trent kind of mentioned earlier, it's one of the best spots in the world and in the United States for oil and gas production. Yeah. And that would also hurt the Gulf of Mexico, which has kind of become a growth driver again for the United States. Yeah. So it's too early to tell what he's going to do there. Yeah. We're hoping he just, you know, that it's more paperwork and tries to slow down the process and not actual banning of anything. So when Obama was in office, those permits might have taken in New Mexico yeah. two months, right? Yeah. To get, when Trump got in literally overnight, it was two weeks. Yeah. And so, you know, what's unfortunate is when people think of federal lands, what do you think of? Like Yellowstone. Yeah. Beautiful. It's awesome. Southern Lee and Southern Eddie, I mean, it's a desert. Yeah, people don't really live out there. Ranches are hundred thousand acres, and everybody's got BLM leases. You run a cow to two hundred acres. That's yeah, Rain would say on his podcast. Yeah, um, which y'all did a great job on that. Thank you. People are going to say the same thing about this. <laughs> but you know, it, it's literally desert, and that state, it's forty oil and gas is forty percent of their income. Yeah, and so you know, you got people in Santa Fe. Santa Fe is beautiful. Well, they're not drilling oil and gas wells in downtown Santa Fe. Right, they're drilling them in the Texas state line of New Mexico and it's desert. And a lot of people live off that income and a lot of their schools and highways and everything is paid off that income from oil and gas. Yep. So it's a big revenue driver for New Mexico. And if you pull, no, if he tries to ban fracking, just say that, I mean, so New, New Mexico now is going to have 40% less income. Yep. That's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it already is. A, their income's already a problem, right? Is there a rush of, of operators right now getting permits like completed assuming that there might be a delay or it might be a lot more a headache if come January? It, it appears so. And once you have a permit, how long is that permit good for? Two years and they can extend another two years. It depends on states, but for New Mexico speaking, that's, yeah. that's the deal. All right. We want to get into more just like y'all's company and the, the rise of the Leon brothers. So y'all started buying with your own money and maybe some friends and family money, I don't know, but y'all partnered with George Young, our good buddy, and NCAP, and really kind of moved things forward. So can you give me just a little insight of like how that partnership all came to be and you know what being a partner with NCAP was like and what it did for y'all's career? Yeah, so I, you know, we started out buying with our own capital and just kind of like you in real estate or anyone else like buying capital assets, it's expensive and yeah. it'll eat you up pretty quick. And so we kind of built a position. We were at a, a junction where it's like, do, do we sell or do we raise capital? And we said, you know, I think we should hold on and raise capital. We got to know George, fortunately through golf, yep. uh, playing golf them at a course we play here in town. And anyways, he was a great guy and he had a lot of success in oil and gas. Uh, we talked a lot about the business when we played. And he had just had some success uh, himself with an operating company in the Delaware Basin. And we kind of told him what we were doing. He loved the idea. And so we started out with our own personal capital and again, and did that for a little while. And that went pretty quick. There's a lot of deals to be bought. And he said, Tyler and Trent, I think, I think we can do a, do a larger scale deal here. 
you know, what do you think about maintaining this? And I'll go to our equity provider and see if they want to do it, a large scale deal. And, And sure enough, they did. And so that's kind of how it started. What have what did y'all learn? Is there, are there certain lessons that you learned from working with one of the best oil and gas private equity funds in the world? Maybe you wouldn't have learned otherwise. For sure. For sure. I mean, I think, you know, uh, hats off to to NCAP and also to our current provider, KKR. They're they're all really smart guys. Yeah. And they're really attentive to details. They really read between the lines of what all these operators are saying and doing. You know, they do their own work. Uh, they listen to us. They also try to do their own own research on what's going on. Yeah, they're really financially driven, which was probably more a little bit more so than Trent and I were just personally. And so they've taught us a lot when it comes to to that and time, value, money, and how to risk things and the way they look at it. And uh, I think it's important to see. Yeah, their resources are incredible that they have. And the guys, you know, in house at NCAP, the guys in house at KKR, and then you know within like NCAP's port codes. I mean, you get a lot of geologists, a lot of engineers, and Look, at the end of the day, someone's got to make a decision. Yeah. An educated guess. George is good at making decisions. Yeah. So uh, I learned that from being around George. He can make a decision. Yeah. And he'll, he'll live with the decision he makes. Yeah. And uh, But the resources, those, like KKR, I mean, NCAP does a great job. We've been, I've been blown away by uh, some of the data KKR has given us in the short amount of time we've been with them. Yeah. Very sharp. Yeah. And the geology and the engineering they do, is, it's been really impressive. And it's, it's nice to see that. And the playbook is, here's an area that we want to buy in. These are the prices we kind of want to pay to be in those areas. Here's a bucket of money for y'all to go spend on this criteria. That's right. And is that still following the same strategy that y'all originally were in in 2015? Or has it evolved over time? Are you in more basins or still just in the Permian? We're still just in the Permian. Um, We'll look at other basins, but so far all acquisitions have been made in the Permian. Uh, I, I think it's kind of an echoing of, of quite honestly, the EMP story right now where it's, uh, returns are a big deal. It's not as much a land grab. Yeah. And I, I feel like we're, we're experiencing that in the mineral business as well. Uh, Hey, not all rocks equal, not all operators equal, you know, well, let's get returns as well. So I think that's important. Is this real? Somebody was saying that if you drill oil out of the ground, you're really only getting like 20 to 30% of what's underground out right now with current technology and like 80 to 70 to 80% of the oil is still left in the ground because the pressure runs out. Is that right? You're getting less than that. You know, primary recovery is probably like six to 8%. And that's, that's historically been, you know, the case and like the origination of oil and gas historically, there's primary drilling, right? Right. 1900s, 1910, 1920. Now they got more than that because there was more porosity and permeability in the rock, but maybe they got 20%, right? Yeah. And then they kind of drilled all that up and then came a secondary recovery, a water flood. And now they have tertiary and this is, and, and that's CO2 and that, and that's all in regards to vertical yeah. production and shale we're newer, right? It's yeah. a newer phenomenon. And so everyone's still in the primary phase of just, you go out and you drill a brand new well and you produce it Yep. and you get, but you don't get a lot because, you know shale is really tight. There's, it's not porous and it's, the permeability is low. So it's kind of what you artificially create with fracture, hydraulic fracturing. I was going to ask this earlier. I forgot, but you mentioned that when you drill a horizontal well, seven to 80% of that, what that well is going to do comes out and call it the first year, year and a half. So when you think about valuing minerals 
are you better to sell it right before the, if you're going to sell your minerals, are you better to sell it right before the first well gets drilled? Or do you sell it like after that first year when 80% of the oil has already been taken out? It really just depends what you own. If you're a mineral owner with, you know, 10 acres in one section in Ward County and Oxy's going to got a permit to drill a well in a regular location, you should probably sell it. Yeah. Why? Well, I mean, that's your only shot, right? Yeah. Um, so you're going to get the production. You're paying 40% ordinary income probably. Yeah. That. Um, not knowing the tax bracket they're in, but you sell it, you're paying capital gains, which it might go away here next year. But you know, that right there is a 17% saving, 18% savings. Yep. So it is theoretically, it's worth more to me than you. Right. Just based off that. Because you're going to get that first year of oil. Well, just off, think about the, you're the paying, tax. The tax, yeah, tax. Yeah. You make a million bucks, you're paying 400 grand of the government. You sell it to me, you're only paying. So paying royalty income's ordinary. That's right. And that's a, yeah, I mean, uh, more people should probably sell just strictly due to the tax implications. They get it. They're going to have a huge gain with just taking capital gains. And if they have a basis of some sort, then that burdens even less. Yeah. You know, and it's not like we're coming out paying. You know, a lot of people think, hey, well, they're paying me and they're going to make it back so fast. That is not the case. Yeah. You know, I mean, it more buying off, you know, a net asset value, future discounted cash flows, and it takes way more than one or two or three or four or five wells. I mean, because it's so known what operators are doing, yeah. you know, prices have eked up. And so you're paying for a lot of resource. So in real estate, if you put something under contract, it's like a 30-day look, and then you got to do environmental studies, and you got to get your bank on board, and you got to do all this stuff to do like a $10 million deal. It could take 60 to 90 days with all these different opinions. Maybe just walk me through, like, if y'all get a, a seller to sell, what does it look like to closing? Like, what do y'all do as mineral buyers? For our company, if... We get board approval. Like, Chris, you want to sell a million bucks? Yep. All right, great. I'm going to go get board approval for that. Yeah. might take a week. We'll send you a purchase sale agreement. It's a page. Yep. Um, Real estate, there's 70-page contracts. Yep. And it's a page. And so we're going to go run a... The biggest risk you're taking is your title cost, which is five, 10 grand, whatever it's going to be. So we're going to send a guy out to that county. He's going to run title back to patent. So they're going to see, Chris, your mom gave it to you. Grandmother gave it to your mom. Uh, her dad got it from the state of Texas or something, right? Yeah. And so we'll go all the way back to Patton. And then- What's Patton? It's from the, the when the government date. owned it and then sold it to the first, you know, uh, private resident. Got it. So then we're going to take all that title and we got a guy that runs our land department and he's a partner of Tyler and I have been with us since day one. He's an incredible asset, William Malloy. So he's going to start looking at it and we use uh, Dawson Parish to do our title opinions over here in town. Uh, so we get a, a title opinion, an interest verification opinion. So our, that attorney's going to go through all that title and he's going to verify that title and he's going to give his opinion. And there might be a couple requirements that we have to get done before we can pay the owner, but that's not all the time. So we get really comfortable with the title and then we're going to pay you. And that we're going to do all that in three to four weeks. Do y'all put up hard money or anything or is it just reputational risk? We don't really, there's sometimes you put some money in escrow, maybe like 10%, but we hadn't really had to do that in a while. Yeah. I think, uh, I'm, I like to think Tilden Capital has a great reputation out there. and uh, I'll do. We're going to do what we say we're going to do. Yep. Uh, and a couple of times we've had to do that, and we didn't want to do it, but <laughs> we went ahead and did it. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so that's the process. And we pay for all the due diligence. And Do you close at a title company, or do you just, like, meet them at their family's house? Honestly, most or? of it's just remote. 
you know, we, you ship a you email them a, a deed, they sign it, notar- have it signed and notarized. They'll email it back to you. If you, so you see that, then you fund them the money, then they overnight you the original. I mean, it's amazing how smooth it goes. On it's so smooth. God. Real estate it's so much harder. Yeah. Um, okay. When you buy a piece of real estate, though, it's really easy once you've bought it to tell the tenant, like, hey, start shipping rent right here. Right. When you buy minerals, uh, can you walk me through the process of the day you close? And 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 then I want to ask a question about, let's say you bought the minerals, you know, the month before that big well was about to get drilled. Walk me through uh, how you get what's called in pay status. And then what happens, because sometimes that could take six, seven months. How do y'all confirm that you're getting every drop of oil that you deserve and it's not continuing to go to the prior minute. Well, that's, that's all company specific uh, and how how good and diligent you are at keeping up with those records. Yeah. There is a lag, like you said, and you can't forget about it and you've got to look at the check when it comes in. And so we're, we've been fortunate. We've got a really good back office that is is great at that. And yeah. they're, they're, we've got a good system on tracking it and being able to follow up and you know, I think that's another nice thing is we always have good rapport with people we're doing business with. And yeah. so it's a really easy conversation. So, you know? but but when you get the signed deed, what do you do? When we get the signed, you got to record it. So to you the, record it with the courthouse okay. in the specific county. And then you get it over to the operator and you basically say, you know, hey, here's the recorded deed we own the property now. And they just put a stop on any- They put a stop. They're supposed to. They're yeah. supposed to. Well, th- that's happen. where I'm getting to. So then what happens? Because they got a lot going on, right? Yeah. And they all, everyone's got a lot going on. So you have a mistake. You know, that's your job to get yourself in pay, right? So you have to follow up. And then if they don't, you might have to talk to the previous owner like, hey, you got a few of our checks. You know, you got to you got to reimburse us. So it's all communication at that point yeah. and staying on top of it. And so, um, you know, that's just different with every company. But we, I don't know, we, we do obsess about it at our office. Yeah, we got to. Kid Edward Hutchinson, who uh, he's in our accounting department, works under Courtney, and he's great at it. Yeah, he has relationships with these DO analysts at all these companies. Because look, Shell does not care about Tilden Capital on five acres in Loving County. Yeah, you know? <laughs> like, it's not a big deal to him, and but it's a big deal to us. Yeah. So Ed's constantly working every week. He's going through it, trying to get us in pay. And like Tyler said, like look, you get these check stubs, and so so if a, we've had owners, they've owned us a couple hundred grand. They haven't paid for six months. Yeah. So we have to get all their check stubs. You get Ed in there, you audit it, you compare it to what we're seeing at the Railroad Commission for amount of oil and gas sold. And that's a process. Uh, I'm glad I don't have to do it every day. Yeah. Day, but Ed and Courtney do. And they match that up and you show it to these mineral owners. And, you know, it says a lot about these mineral owners. I mean, we have not been short at a dime in five years of doing this. That's awesome. So it's, it's, it's been, it's a good relationship. They're happy they get paid. They want to make it right. But there's not many, there haven't been many snakes that we've run into in the mineral world, which says a lot about people. So we're here, we're here in 2020 for the last five years for anybody listening that has not been involved in oil and gas, mineral world's been one of the hottest probably industries in the world. I mean, we talked about mineral prices going from 300 to 30,000 and there was a ton of, I mean, the model for a long time not necessarily y'all's model, but for a lot of mineral buyers was buy it, flip it, buy it, flip it, buy it, flip it. What do y'all think is the industry for mineral buyers going forward? Because the buy it and flip it model, I mean, is it fair to say is pretty much run its course? 
I think, you know, once again, you're kind of echoing the EMP space consolidation, right? So I think that's occurring in the mineral world. There's the windows getting tighter where you want to buy, who you want to buy under. And, you know, the, the capital at the top is, is getting more specific. And so there's less room for mineral buyers. Yeah. It's not as fragmented as it once was. Right. Well, and like, I mean, we have KKR as a partner. They're really big boys. You know, they, a lot of times they would just buy marketed deals. Yep. They want to buy on the ground now. And so that's where we come in. And so if you're a broker and you're going to, you're planning on flipping it. Yeah. And you, I'm talking to the same mineral owner and you're paying more than me. So you're paying more than KKR. You're going to, maybe you can go make a hundred bucks, 200 bucks an acre or somewhere else, but you're taking a lot of risk. Yeah. And the end buyer is becoming more sophisticated. For right? sure. And so KKR is an end buyer and they're buying on the ground. Well, they are the end buyer, but they got to like, are they the true end buyer? Like, where does this all end up? Because like, have, have, is it fair to say royalty trusts have not outperformed in the public markets? And then you have these mega funds that have spent billions of dollars buying minerals. Like, where does this all eventually end? Well, I think I think royalty funds have actually they've done incredible until COVID. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you can't to it's just hard to look at COVID and it's nothing you can prepare for. Right. Right. And it just absolutely slaughtered our business, just like it did airlines and anything that's directly tied to this kind of shutdown. And so I think in general, prior to that, they truly were doing well. Yeah. And, uh, and their returns were above and beyond other energy companies for the most part. So where does it all go? I think eventually it, it, and I think what everybody's hoping is it goes more and more to the investors across the United States in the public space, yep. you know, more to the retail investors. And I think what has to happen is the space has to grow. Yeah. And so I think you see that over the next several years with more consolidation of, of people who have been buying and, and growing that space. And as capital, capital has been kind of frozen from coming into the industry. One, just because the industry's down, there's talks like this ESG thing. We talked about batteries and Tesla and all this stuff. Like what's the impetus that lets capital f- start flowing back into this industry again? I think returns. it's all, yeah, it's all returns. returns. We talked about it yesterday at lunch. Like what type of, like, is there, is it an oil price? Is it is some type of proof that returns are going to remain sustainable? Cause you were saying yesterday, you, since 2014, this is your fourth cycle. Yeah, there's been a lot of downturns, and uh, I mean, imagine if you're a frack hand and you've been laid off four times in five years. Yeah, but, I mean, if you're talking in the public space, I mean, these you're starting to see these major operators, you know, change their dividend model, and they're giving more cash back. You know, they used to draw 100% cash flow, maybe they're going to only do 70% now, 60%, and return cash to their investors. You know, as a private mineral guy, it's it's different than if you look at an ENP. Yeah, so, you know, you start delivering people mid-teen returns. Well, I think you bring up an interesting point, Chris, because you talk about the, the way you just react is the same way every public investor reacts. Why should I go back to energy? And we actually hear Kramer say it all the time on CNBC. Why are we even talking about oil? Why are we talking Oil's about it? Oil's dead. Yeah. And, it, and it's because of getting burned so many times. And I think the reason you got burned, I always remember when when the, uh, let's just call them smaller busts when they occurred, they were V-shaped recoveries, yep. which is kind of the worst thing for for a cyclical business right right and you need honestly bigger bust and bigger booms because they last longer yeah and that's in a way that's kind of be- in some ways it's better for an investor right because it's longer one direction right and so i think what you're what you're truly having in the space now is a true downturn 
And when you hear operators finally come out and like really changing the way they're thinking, like, hey, we're only going to drill out of 70% of our cash flow and we're going to return cash to shareholders. Like that has not been said in a long time. And so I think the mineral world will do the same. And I think all of those things will justify higher, not crazy high oil prices, but more sustainable prices that create healthy margins for investment of capital, right? For sure. It's just going to work work its way out. And so that return will go to where it's justified for investors' needs. And when that point happens, I think it'll be a healthy balance and it'll be a longer run for investors to come in the space. Is so, Wall Street out of touch with what what oil and gas actually is? Like there are a bunch of guys up in New York. Do they truly get how the industry impacts the world? I think they get that oil and gas is important. And I don't want to speak completely on, I don't know exactly what they're thinking, but you know, it's just kind of easy to buy Tesla and it goes up five times. Yeah. You know what I mean? In one year versus buying Chevron and they went down 10%. For you sure. Know, it's just, I just think that's really more of what the issue is than I don't know what oil and gas is. And in theory, if the, the Democratic Party is going to try and at least slow down oil drilling, that's going to mean less uh, supply coming out of the ground. But the demand's going to be, you know, once we get through COVID, going to be shooting back. Doesn't that bode well for oil prices overall? There's a lot that bodes well for oil prices, and the only re- the only way you can be in this business is if you're an optimist. Yeah, <laughs> and that we were joking about it yesterday, like looking at some of these mineral prices, and the guys like, "Well, I'm going to hold off; prices are coming back." I'm like, and this is incredible, but that's the only way you're in this business. Yeah. Um, but I mean, look, Donald Trump wasn't doing any favors for us when he's tweeting to Saudi Arabia when oil gets above sixty bucks. Yeah. I mean, so you know, I think if we can get demand back, people are traveling, people, our parents want to get on a plane and go to Florida or something. And you're starting to see travel again. I mean, there is a lot less oil being produced today than there was six months ago. How much less, for, like from a rig count perspective? What was peak rig count and where are we at now? Like maybe as it relates to the Permian? 2,000 rigs almost. Yeah, I can't remember the exact numbers, but let's just say we're down, you know, 60% or something. Yeah. And so you've had a drastic drop there. You know, oil production has dropped. You know, that, I think that's going to be the inter- interesting thing to see over the next couple of years is there's a lot of projections. And, you know, as we talked about with shale wells, they come on, they drop fairly fast. So what does that really shake out at the end of the day? And then all of a sudden, if you get a rebound with travel or a vaccine and everyone's like, man, I feel good. I'm going to go back to my normal life. Yeah. And you get back up to consuming 100 million barrels a day uh, versus 92 right now or 90, whatever it is. What does that do? I don't know. I mean, I think I like the story. It makes me feel good that we got a chance yeah. that the prices will get up to a higher level. And maybe one more thing, you know, everybody thinks about oil and gas as just transportation, 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 but especially as it relates to oil, I don't think that most Americans, like we're sitting in this room, basically every single product that the microphones, these stands, our phones are made from a petroleum product. Is there like something you would say that's like one of the biggest misnomers about the industry is like we use oil for everything? Yeah, I think a huge misnomer, two big misnomers are how pollution tied to oil and gas wells and driving cars. You know, there's bigger polluters out there. I actually read an article today. I was glad to see it. It was like, you know, coal is a much bigger polluter. Yeah. It's a lion's share. Coal shouldn't even be in the same sentence with oil and gas when it comes to pollution. And so, you know, even you talk about going to the, to the EV model, you know, what is that cat dozer going to run on to go mine? Yep. To get the products to create, a battery, you know, they can't run on a battery and not a, not a cat dozer. I mean, that's a massive piece of equipment. 
And then the other misnomer, like you said, is, yeah, plastics. I mean, the petrochemical industry, like oil is used in a ton of different things to create things that we use every day that we take for granted. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I don't think it's, I don't think it's, it, it gets wrapped up in coal and smog because they show a picture of the LA traffic and they show the haze. And it's like, this is why you have it. It's because of these tailpipes. Yep. And that's just not, that's not the case. Yeah. It's not at all. And like, honestly, you know, uh, we have a ranch and I go out and we see pumping units on it. And yeah, they're an eye burden, but there is nothing more of a burden when I drive over the Arbuckle Mountains in Oklahoma and there's these massive windmills. Yep. Like that, why is that necessarily better to the eye? Like, that, I mean, I don't know if that's good. Yeah. So anyways, I think there's a lot of misnomers that I hate to see constantly in the space. I'm all about, I think Trent and I both are, we would love for the environment to be as great as it can, but I mean, let's not be ridiculous here and understand really what you're working with. Well, and I think if you look on the fiscal side of it, and like we said, New, Mex- New Mexico's federal state lands, right? Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of their state programs come off their state royalty, right? Right. And so Donald Trump, I think six months ago, he made he made the solar companies and uh, wind farms finally pay their royalty after two years. Two years of royalty on solar and wind was $50 million at all the federal runs in the United States. It's billions of dollars a year coming from oil and gas. Yep. You know, they're trying to raise all of our taxes for more cash. Well, they're going to slash this and what they're going to get an extra, they're going to only get $50 million a year from wind and solar. I hear you. Is that is that the impetus of what ESG is? Like what it what in y'all's mind, what does ESG mean and why is it such a big thing that people talk about now in oil and gas? Well, it's well, what the pensions are investing off of. So they kind of all float together and all the Europeans are doing it. ESG, it's environmental I and mean, it's not really the governance. I mean Yeah, so anything that's fossil fuel related is getting dinged. Yeah. Right. It's just it's getting dinged and Oil and gas is thrown right in there with coal, with strip mining and the whole deal. It's it's looked at as the worst. Yeah. And, and I and I think that is a huge misnomer because the industry is not it, it's just not that. Yeah. I mean it's really not. So it's not like look, oil sands, that's nigh burden. That's not what really is going on in the lower forty eight. That's a Canadian thing. But they're recycling a bulk of their water now. I mean, you talk about technology and environmental, I mean Oil and gas is getting cleaner than it was three years ago. Yeah. And that's also something that people don't realize. I mean, you go frack a well and use 300, 400,000 barrels of oil. Well, you're going to frack your next well and use 70% of that water again. And so really the you're, you're getting a lot more with the oil and gas through revenue and putting people to work. And I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing that, you know, you the shale revolution, when it came out, everybody loved it. California, I mean, that gave us so much stability in the world. And now you want to shut that off. What is our dependence going to be to the OPEC countries now? Right. Are you going to be able to flex at Saudi and Iran and Iraq? And are you going to be able to do that? Yeah. If you're not going to drill horizontal wells? No, you're not. Yeah. Because I know I'm probably still going to be driving a truck in two years. And people that like to drive further than three or 500 miles probably like to have a, you know, internal combustion engine. But we're going to be dependent on those Middle East countries just like we were 10 years ago. One more question on oil and gas, and then we'll we'll get to we'll wrap it wrap it up. But the six day, I can't get over that only like six day percent of the oil is coming. So we don't really have an oil shortage. We just don't have a way to get it all out of the ground. That's right. It takes it'll take new recovery methods, which you know, quite honestly, right now are too. Is there anything you're seeing? Like, is is there a new revolution coming? Yeah. So people are trying to refrack wells, which have been done before on vertical wells. They're trying to refrack them. It's costly. 
returns are kind of average what's been occurred, but it, it does produce more oil. And so you can do that. So you probably need higher oil prices to do that. You need better technology to bring the cost down. Are, are people they, investing in all that right now? Well, no, not right now. Yeah, yeah. You're just trying to survive right. for the most part. You don't see a ton of companies doing that. There's some other companies trying to, you know, to basically pump gas back down hole, not necessarily CO2, but miscible and immiscible gases down hole to you know, pressure it up and get more oil production back out of the reservoir. But it's all in its infant stages, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think that's another thing, a great reason to own minerals is, hey, when they do figure out a secondary way, your revenue is going to increase. Yeah. Just kind of out of the blue. They're, yeah. So that's that's the nice thing about them. These yeah. majors are putting in billions and billions of dollars of infrastructure into these, you know, the Eagle Fur and the Permian. And, you know, when you see that, they're going to go get their initial well results, they're going to come back. Well, 20 years later, they're still going to have all this pipe in the ground, all this infrastructure. And what you saw in the older fields is they come in and water flooded or CO2 flooded. Now, can you do that in shale? Maybe the floods aren't as big or you got to be closer to the well bore. I don't know. But, you know, you'd like to think if there's still a need for oil and gas in 30 years, that that's probably what they'll use the infrastructure for. For sure. Which would just be a bonus off owning these minerals if you still own them in 30 years. Yep. All right. Y'all won a national championship and played at Oklahoma State. Your sister played at Georgia. Y'all all played some level of professional golf. Art, if you're listening to this, kudos to you for raising three great kids. How has golf kind of like impacted y'all's careers? Like, what did you learn through golf that has made you who you are? Yeah, I think a lot of things. Um, you know, I had, a, I had an older Oklahoma State player tell me one time how much helped him in business. And I didn't think of it until he told me that. I mean, a great thing about golf is the risk reward aspect, right? And so it's same thing in business. Like there's not always a clear path on what to do. And so, you know, it's like, look, you got a 250 yard shot over water. Do you go for it or not? And so, you know, dealing or kind of going through that every day, I've kind of noticed that in the business world, how we definitely think in probability a lot yep. and not finite, not needing finite answers. Yep. And so I think that's a huge, uh, a huge thing that's, that's helped us in business. And, um, yeah, I think that's what I take from it. Yeah. I think, you know, golf, you, you fail every week. I mean, you don't yeah. win that much. I thought I was pretty dang good in college. I won twice. Yeah. And I, you know, out of those hundred terms I played, I probably thought I was going to win 90 of them. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of weeks I knew there's no chance <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> but you go into it feeling good and you know, someone plays better. And so in business, you've, you fail a lot. And especially in the mineral business, you know, we're making offers to thousands of people a day and you're closing a few deals a month. Right? Yep. But I've really noticed with Tyler and I, we don't get let down by being told no or by failing. You know, yeah. That's just part of it. And yep. so that's been a big deal for me when I kind of see other people in this business and they, maybe they can't handle the failure as well. But for us, that was an everyday deal. <laughs> it's a lot of rejection. Have y'all ever gotten a deal done because of y'all's golf game or being on a golf course or? For sure. Yeah. yeah. We wouldn't be with KKR today if it wasn't for golf. That's awesome. We had an incident uh, in with George because he respected us because we were good golfers. He knew if you played at Oklahoma State, you probably worked hard. Yeah. Good work ethic. And my kids will play golf because of that reason. Yeah. Now, they don't have to play at Oklahoma State, but they will be good golfers. Yeah. They'll probably play at Oklahoma State. <laughs> they can at least go there. What's the best advice you've ever received? Business, personal. Man, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> kind of on the spot. Yeah, it's tough on the spot. Best advice. <laughs> I don't know. 
I don't I don't know if I can have one that jumps out at me. Cool. Buy low, sell high is the one. I love it. <laughs> that was pretty basic. <laughs> that's definitely making it on, baby. That's it. Yeah. Never give up. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Yep. Thank you, Chris. Been excited about this one. Thank you, Chris. Love you guys. Love you, buddy. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.